Revelation chapter 1. We're going to finish chapter 1 today, 8 through 20, but we're spending most of our time at the beginning. So Revelation 1, 8 is this Apostle John. We've introduced Jesus. We've introduced the purpose of the letter. Now John's introducing himself, and he says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. Revelation 1, 9. You guys, I love this opening. I love that here's the author, and he's like, here's a couple things you need to know about me. One, I am your brother. And he's writing this letter to the churches in um, the New Testament era in Turkey, Ephesus, Sardis, etc., the churches that would start all the churches. So this letter is to them, but it's also to us 2,000 years later. So when he says, I'm your brother, he's not just talking to those people back then. He's talking to you and me. This is John. He's our brother. He's part of our family. So we should listen to our brother. And he says, I am not only your brother, but I am your partner. We are in this together. What are we in together? Suffering. We are partners in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls all of us. Jesus is calling every one of you in this room today to develop patient endurance. And we'll talk more about that and why we need that as we go on. What does John know about suffering? What makes him the authority? What gives him the right to, to preach to us, to coach us about suffering? Well, he knows a little bit. At the time of this letter being written, the apostle John was the last of the apostles, the last disciple alive. Of the original 12, they have all died or been executed for their faith. John's the last one. He's an old man now, and he's just cruising around old school Turkey, which is where the New Testament was written, and he's going to the churches, and he's encouraging them, and he's teaching them, and anybody who will listen, he wants to say, um, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He saved my life. He wants to save yours. He's done miracles for me. He wants to do miracles for you. If you want life after this life, if you want life in heaven, here's how. He's just sharing his faith. And for that, he is beaten. He is imprisoned. But every time he gets out and every time he gets up, he just goes right back to it. And the authorities of the day said, look, we just can't, we don't know what to do with this guy, John. He's the last one. If we kill him, there'll be riots. So let's put him on a ship and just send his behind 50 miles off coast to an island and he can just live and die there. Let's just get rid of him. Here's a picture of modern-day Turkey, that giant landmass is the southwest corner of Turkey. That red blip is about where Ephesus is, present day. And all of the seven churches that this letter is written to, Ephesus is the first one, and then they just go in a little line all throughout that region. And that's John's stomping grounds. That's where John shared the gospel. That's where all of John's friends and family were. That was his mission field. He lived and breathed that region. And when they grabbed him up and put him in a boat, they 
basically mailed him all the way down here to the lower left corner to the island of Patmos. It's only 50 miles by boat, but it might as well have been a million. They sent him there to that island, and then they imprisoned him on that island. So it wasn't just that they shipped him away from everyone and everything he knew, but they then also said, hey, while you're here, you're living in this cave. So here's a picture of John's cave, the cave of the apocalypse, some people call it, because it's the cave that he lived in when he received this letter from a spirit from the angel of God. Now you see this is all ornate and pretty and it's got nice floors. Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. That's not what it looked like back in the day. The cave is just this section on the right, that big lumpy overhang. It's on the side of a hill and it's just that little area back in there. But this is where it happened. This is where he lived. This is where the angel appeared. So this is the picture of the cave today, and they've converted it into a shrine, into a church. They have services here. I would love to go and worship and hear teaching in this cave where an angel of the Lord, where Jesus Christ himself ministered to and talked to John. So people travel here all year, every year to see this place. But the picture just really doesn't do it justice because that's not what it was like when John lived in the cave, right? That doesn't look too bad. I'm like, that's that's pretty cool. I would totally hang out there. Here's a sketch of what John's situation actually looked like. You couldn't tell from the pictures, but if he stood up in that cave, he's bumping his head. He's basically in a hole in the ground. They would put stones in front of it. He would have to stay there. It was more like a prison cell. He eats in there. He sleeps in there. He does other stuff in there. Like that's where he lives, and I would not want to go to there, right? I I would hate if that's my life. Hey, man, until you die, this is your home, this hole in the ground. And oh, sure, sometimes we'll let you out, but it'll just be to beat you or to make you move this pile of rocks to this pile of rocks, and then tomorrow you can move them back. It was prison. It wasn't, hey, you can retire on this island. It was, you are banished to this rock in the sea, and we're sticking you in a cave, and we're going to make your life as hard as we can for as long as you have left. So did John know what it was like to suffer? Absolutely. Now, to get into the mind of John, I would challenge you guys with just an opening question. Just Wherever you're at today, whatever's been going on in your life lately or just big that God might bring to to mind today, um, I want you to recall the loneliest moment that you can remember in your life. I mean, think about the loneliness of being walled up into a cave on an island. Even if you get out of the cave, you ain't getting off the island. Like, how lonely, how forgotten he must have felt. Have you ever felt so lonely? so isolated, so, I mean, you could feel that way in a crowd of people, just like nobody sees me. That's how John felt. That was John's life. It makes me remember, as I contemplated this question, it made me remember when I was about eight years old, and I was um, walking out with my mom and my dad and my sister through the garage, and they were going to go run an errand for about an hour, and my sister gets in the car, my mom gets in the car, and for whatever reason, I'm like, I don't want to go. And I started crying, and I started pouting, and I started complaining to my dad. And my dad was like, you know what? Fine. You can just stay here alone. And he meant it. 
And I was eight, and I had never been at the house all by myself for an extended period of time at eight years old. And he's like, I will leave. Like, I'm totally fine with just putting you back in the house and leaving. And he says, go inside. And he turns his back on me and walks to the car, and he gets in, and I just start bawling. Like, I'm sure snot was just flowing. I was so mortified at the idea of being in this place all by myself, my people leaving, and I am just alone and broken, and I just wailed. My mom was like, let him in the car, and he's like, no, I'm teaching him a lesson. Oh, it was horrible, you guys. Have you ever felt like that? Just like the people closest to you, just for, for better or worse, turn their back on you. That's how I felt. I felt super alone on Tuesday as I was writing this sermon. On Tuesday, um, I showed up at work in a foul mood. Um, Monday night, around 4 or 5 in the morning, I had a horrible dream, and I've asked the Lord if there was anything to it, and I haven't heard anything yet, but I was helping a friend of mine, and he was in a bad way, and I was helping him move, but he had stolen some stuff from someone, and I was like, we need to give this back, and the person he stole from comes up in the dream, and I am standing with Wyatt, my son, my five-year-old, my oh, he's six now, my six-year-old on my hip, and I see this man coming, and he pulls a gun out of his pocket. And in my dream, it was one of those dreams like, it's, like this is really happening right now. I didn't know I was dreaming. And he walked right up to me, and I'm trying to think of what to say to assuage his very visible anger, and he puts the gun right here in my back. And I don't remember what he said, but I knew this man is going to murder me and murder my son. And he pulled the trigger, and I hear the shot, and then I wake up. And it wasn't one of those dreams where I'm like, whew, I'm awake. It was one of those dreams where I woke up, and I was just like, that was just the worst thing that I've experienced maybe this year. Like, I was sad. I was depressed. I was angry. I felt helpless. Like, the emotional hangover of that dream was on me and in me. And I come to work, and I, my office these days is right behind that little curtain, and I office with Bailey, and the rest of the team office is next door because the building flooded, etc. And I sit down, and Bailey comes in, and she's like, good morning, and I'm just like, <laughs> and she like just turns and looks at her computer, and I'm like, I, didn't, I don't know that I said anything mean, but I knew I was like emoting just like, and I could tell, like, you know, she was scared for her life. And so I would find out later that, like, I gave her, like, Justin PTSD as a result of that morning in the office with me as I was just feeling no one can appreciate how angry I am, how upset I am, how really scared I am that something like that might happen one day. And it just, even though Bailey was right next to me, like, it wasn't a comfort to me. I, like, I, I wanted her to go away. Sorry about that, Bailey, by the way. Yeah, trooper, suck it up. All right, so sometimes you can feel alone because you are alone, and sometimes you can, I mean, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I know there's people in this room now that feel that way. There's people all around you, and you're just like, no one sees me. So when we feel that way, those are the feelings that come with it. Alone, cut off isolated. It makes me think of the quote, no man is an island. It's from a famous sermon by Pastor John Donne, I think in the 1800s or something, but it makes me think of this picture. There's my little chubby Chargain, and there's Squishy. 
and she's got her balloon, which is just like the saddest balloon you ever saw. And she was having a good day at this point in time. But when I took that picture, I'm just like, she looks so alone. And like, even her joy is just like dragging her behind her, like just sin on a rope. And it just makes me think of this quote, no man is an island. Why is Charlotte look so sad here? Because she is all by herself. And the reason that line resonates with us so much and the purpose of his sermon when he spoke it, no man, no woman is an island, is because none of us were made to live alone. None of us were created to walk through life alone. And do you know what the devil loves more than anything? To get you alone, to make you run away, to chase you off into the mountains or a cave or, where, or your room he loves to separate us from people because then there's nobody there to challenge us. Then there's nobody there to help us. How often have you been in a bad way and your response is flee to be alone? That's what the devil wants. Don't talk to anybody. Don't share with anybody. Don't ask for help. I'm going to get you all alone and then I'm really turning up the heat. So here's John alone on this island. And I just imagine what he must have been thinking because this man was a great man of God. He was one of the 12 disciples handpicked by Jesus Christ to say, there is hope. He was one of the 12 disciples. And within the 12, he was one of the three. He was one of Jesus's private little crew. Like he was one of the special three, Peter, James, and John. I think it's Peter, James, and John. But he was one of those guys. He was present when Jesus said, Come on, my special three, my close unit, my mighty men, let's go up this mountain. And Elijah and Moses appear from heaven, and they talk to Jesus on the mountain. And it's such a holy experience that Jesus turns white, like crazy stuff that John got to see, that not even the other disciples got to see. John, whose nickname in Scripture was the Son of Thunder. He was so passionate for God that his nickname was a son of thunder because he would show up and just start hollering in the name of Jesus about how great God is and how loving he is. And people would just be like, I'm in. I want some. Take me. Take all of me. The son of thunder. This is the guy who Jesus on the cross is about to die and says of everybody here, of my 12 disciples, of my three special disciples, John, I pick you. You take care of my mother after I'm gone. Man, you don't just ask anybody that. You ask your number one guy to do that. John, the disciple, it says in the Bible, that Jesus loved. This is Jesus' special man. And he's ending his life alone in this hole? That doesn't make sense to me. I imagine what John must have been feeling, right? He lived his life right for Jesus. He grew in Jesus. He was very proud at the beginning of his ministry, and by the end he was very humble and yet still bold in the name of Jesus. He made disciples the right way and disciples that went on to make other disciples. It says he was the pillar of the early church, like this man lived a life that we should all aspire to, and yet he's alone in a hole? That doesn't make sense to me. There are some people in this room, I'm one of them, that says, man, I live right. Why does bad stuff happen to me? That doesn't make sense. John knows how you feel. If I'm John, after that kind of life, I'm thinking and I'm feeling thoughts and feelings of confusion, depression, I'm getting angry at God. Why am I finishing my life in this hole in the ground on a 
hillside on an island away from all my friends. Like, what did I do wrong? I want you guys to reach under your uh, chairs and grab your pen and paper if you don't have it yet. We're going to ask a question here that I want you to do some business with Jesus before you leave this room today. It's one question, but I'm going to ask it in a variety of ways just to make sure everybody gets a personal touch. This is just between you and the Lord. You don't have to turn this card in or anything, but you're welcome to put it in the prayer boxes when you're done if you want. Is there anywhere in your life that you're just confused about God, whether God, God, or something God has said, something in the Scripture? Is there anywhere in your life that you just, your main thing is like, I'm confused about this. I don't get this. I don't feel comfortable or right about this. It's okay if you have questions. It's okay if you're confused. Own it. Acknowledge it. Jot it down. Um, Maybe that's not the right way to ask that question for some of you. I'll ask it this way. Is there anywhere in your life that you're depressed about God? Or God has said something or done something that you're like, I just want to sit down and give up. That's okay if you feel that way about God or something he said. Is there anywhere in your life you're depressed? Is there anywhere in your life that you're angry? Just angry, period. But also, like, is there anywhere in your life where you're, you're mad at God? Why, why'd you take grandma? Why'd my dad lose his job? Why'd she say no? Why'd he say yes, you know? But is there anywhere in your life, just between you and the Lord, that you're, you're just legitimately, you're angry at God? It's okay. Just own it. Let me ask same questions, but just a little bit of a nuance is, is there something in your life that you want, that you long for, that you don't have? It's okay. Own it. Write it down. Or something that you had and lost, and you've just got some discomfort now between you and the Lord. You lost maybe some trust, a loved one a thing. Um, Maybe this is the best way to ask this question. Is there anywhere in your life today that you and God are not right? Is there any sort of wall between you guys? Or does it feel like there's a divide? Whatever any of those questions start in you, just own it, acknowledge it, write it down, and then we're going to move on. So if, like John, you feel alone, or you know what it is to suffer, or you're depressed or confused or just flat out angry, amen, amen, John knows how you feel. And that's good, because this book is hard, and I like that this man that's writing it knows where I'm at and knows how I feel. Why is it relevant that John knew suffering? Because life is hard. You guys, we got it real easy here in Montgomery Harris County. I said the other week that we live in the top 2% of wealth, not just in present day history, but the history of the world. No people, no civilization has had access to more than we do now. I don't care who the richest kid in this room is or the poorest. We all have more than basically anyone else, not just in the world today, but in the history of the world. But life is hard anyway. Life is challenging anyway. Life is difficult anyway. And according to this book, according to Revelation, it is about to get exponentially harder. It's about to get much, much worse, especially for people of faith. So if you want to succeed in suffering, which we've just 
It exists and it's coming. If you want to succeed in suffering, John literally gave us a recipe right from the get-go. I, John, am your brother and your partner in what? Suffering, God's kingdom, and in patient endurance. And so the three steps necessary for surviving, if not thriving in suffering, we can find right there. Step one to thriving or at least surviving in suffering is be willing to suffer for Jesus. Man, that's a question you should think about, if not right this second, then today. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? If Jesus asked you to do or has asked you to do something hard, uncomfortable, that you don't understand, are you willing to be uncomfortable for him? Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to have that hard conversation with your friend, even if it might cost you that friend for a season? Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Are you willing to look a little foolish for Jesus? That's the first thing we need to be willing to do. Be willing to suffer for Jesus, and you will survive suffering. Step two, to survive suffering, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus during the suffering. You know, it's so easy when you suffer, you focus on what's causing you to suffer. But Jesus is like, no, 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 look at me. Keep your eyes on me. Listen to me during your suffering. If you only focus on the thing or the event or the fear that's causing your suffering, then that's going to be your God. That's, good. that's what's going to rule your life and your decisions. If you're only focused on the bully, you're only going to be afraid or thinking up elaborate plans for revenge. But if the bully is there and your eyes are on Jesus, you're going to be able to survive. You're going to be able to thrive. Step three is as you keep your eyes on Jesus during suffering, you have to work to develop that patient endurance. You have to work at it. It's not just going to happen. You're not just going to wake up tomorrow and be like, I'm endurable, you know? You've got to work at it. You've got to endeavor. You've got to um, strive to develop patient endurance in Jesus. So how do we do that? Well, the answer is in the next verse. It was the Lord's day, and John was worshiping in the Spirit. This dude is in a cave on an island removed from everybody and everything he knows. He's suffering. What's he doing? Is he complaining? Is he making hash marks on the wall bitterly? Is he just like looking for ways to kill the guards? No. It says he knew what day of the week it was, the Lord's Day, today, Sunday, and he was worshiping. His circumstances didn't overtake him. His faith did. He kept his eyes on Jesus, and he was worshiping, and specifically, he was worshiping in the Spirit. That's a special thing. It's only mentioned a handful of times in Scripture that I'm aware of, but to worship in the Spirit, I don't even know exactly what that means. My buddy Matthew Henry has this to say about it from that commentary I love so much. Those who would enjoy communion with God must endeavor to separate their thoughts and their affections from flesh and fleshly things and allow their minds to be wholly taken up with things of a spiritual nature. What does that mean? You want to worship in the Spirit? Do what John did. Try to see things not from your point of view or your circumstances point of view, but from God's point of view. John focused on the reality of Scripture in the midst of his suffering and not the perception of the suffering itself. How many times have you been scared to death of this, that, or the other, and at the end of the day, nothing happened? 
that's basically the case every time. Satan just wants to scare you to death. Even when what you're scared of, it doesn't even exist. I was talking to Jed between services, and he was taking the trash out the other night. And he dumped the trash in the trash can. He hears a scary noise down the street. And it just so happened he watched a horror movie earlier in the week. Sorry, I'm calling you out, buddy. It's totally happening. And he was scared. And you know what? I get it. I hate scary movies. I won't watch them because I'm 42, and I have found myself walking down the hall at night in my own home, and the doors are locked, and I'm like walking, and I hear something scary, and I'm just like, Brock, help me. There's nothing there except for Charlotte. I I could take her. I'm not going to kick her. She scares me. Um, You want to worship in the Spirit? You want to worship according to truth? Focus on the reality of Scripture, not the perception of your circumstance. There's four ingredients to worshiping in the Spirit. Solitude, Scripture, worship, and the removal of distractions. Four ingredients necessary if you want to learn, if you want to experience what worship in the Spirit looks like, you need to carve out some time, solitude. You need to make sure your Bible is handy, Scripture. You need to be ready to worship, to say, God, you're right and I might be wrong. And you need to remove distractions. Don't take your phone into your quiet time if you can't not look at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, sports scores, whatever. Be alone with the Lord, have your Bible ready, and then if he talks to you, if you feel impressed by a particular scripture and you're like, ooh, that's for me, like be willing to admit this is true and this is not. God's right and I'm wrong. To worship something means that you place it higher than yourself. So that can be singing to something greater than yourself, but also can be changing the way you think because this is right and this is wrong. Take your complaint. This is another way we could put it, to worship in the Spirit, to worship in truth. Take whatever it is that you wrote down earlier, your complaint, for lack of a better word, but also take your Bible and just get alone with God today today and ask him, will you talk to me about this? Can we discuss this? And just then just listen. Just, just read and maybe something right there on the page is going to speak directly to your... I can't tell you how many times I've taken my complaints to the Lord, opened this book and I read a story and I'm like, oh my God, that guy's going through the same thing I went through. Well, what did he do? Or what should I not do that he did? We're fascinated, you guys, by the end. And the end is coming. The apocalypse is coming. Armageddon is going to happen. And we're fascinated by it. So we need to develop some patient endurance because things are going to get worse before they get better. But we are fascinated in this day and age, maybe like no other, with the end of the world. I mean, you don't have to click more than two or three stations on your TV to find a show about angels or demons or zombies or the end of the world. And I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking about all the preparation that we're doing for the end of the world that's just so stupid, right? You guys heard of go bags or bug out bags, you know, in case of the zombie apocalypse. I mean, there's trucks driving around town. They're like $300 and we'll say a go bag for the zombie apocalypse because, you know, that's going to happen. That's totally in scripture. No, it's not. And you get these bags and all it's full of is just killing things, right? You got your 
dirty, hairy gun. You got your Glock. You got your knives. You got your gas mask. You got your big, big, big guns for, I guess, just the really large zombies. I don't know. You got, um, I don't know what those are. Is that things for your ears? If the zombies yell at you, you got a shovel and an axe. You got all this stuff. You got a bulletproof vest in case the zombies, you know, know how to shoot. It's just so dumb. So silly. Those things aren't going to save you. I'll show you, as I thought about this zombie apocalypse go bag, I'm like, well, what would my go bag look like? My go bag I have on me today. It's this bag. It's my little inert satchel bag. And in it are all of those things. I've got my journal. And you'll notice it's black and red writing. Anything that I want to say to God, I write in black ink. Those are Justin's thoughts. And anything I sense him saying to me or I read in Scripture, I write in red. And I can go back years, a decade, and see a personal conversation I had with the Lord where I said, here's my complaint. And he said, well, here's some truth. And I try to live by the truth and not, the re- not my complaint. I got some glasses so I can see and focus a little better because I'm old. I got some of our Vineyard Initiative cards because they're just great for quiet times too. I've got my pens, black and red, black and red. I've got some prayer cards because I'm creative in my quiet time. And I, I mean, I've had my Bible. I don't know what my quiet time would look like without my scripture, without my Bible. I got some nature on there. I do have my phone because sometimes I need to look up commentary and I just don't know that stuff in my brain. This is my go bag. This is my preparation for the apocalypse because I'm preparing for something that's actually going to happen the end of the world. I'm preparing for God, today is Sunday, October, and here's my problem, and I need you to talk to me about it. I'm not preparing for some mythical, fantastical event that's nowhere in Scripture. Let's prepare. Let's be a people that prepare for something we actually know is going to happen. I've been reading you guys' prayer requests lately and praying through them, and it's just such an honor that you guys trust us with those things. It's a privilege. We, we count it as a blessing that we get to know you in that way, and really, more importantly, to pray for you. I encourage you to continue to drop your prayer requests in these doors. Maybe you're writing one even as I'm talking today. Drop them in there. It's an honor to pray for you. But as I've been reading them, I've been noticing there's been a, a subtle theme, which I've really seen for years in student ministry and really in just in life. But a lot of prayer requests these days have been saying things like, I don't hear from God. Um, I don't understand what God is saying. I don't know if I even believe in God. Um, God's way is too hard. I get, I get all of that. If you feel that way, if you've ever felt that way, if you feel that way today, can I just encourage you that you are in great company? I feel that way a lot. Every Old Testament prophet felt that way at one point during their ministry. John, who wrote Revelation, felt that way when he was on that island. Jesus Christ felt that way on the cross when he was talking to God. God, let this pass. God, is there any other way? God, I don't like this. Do I have to? Yes, you do. Something amazing will happen if you suffer well in this moment, Jesus, John, Old Testament prophets, Justin. Isaiah 49, 13 through 16, this is some of my favorite scripture in all of the Bible. It's just after the verse God gave me that called me in a student ministry, and it says this, Sing for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on them in their suffering. And yet Israel replies, The Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. 
You ever feel that way? I feel that way. The Lord has deserted me. The Lord has forgotten me. Don't you feel that way sometimes? I do. And yet, do you want to know how God responds to me and to you in that moment? God replies, never, never, never. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for the child that she has born? But even if that were possible, I will never forget you. Look, I have written your names on the palm of my hand. It's like, I guess God's saying he's got tattoos. I've written your name on the palm of my hand. How can I forget Brooke if her name is right there in front of me? How can God forget you if you are before him all day, every day? He has never once forgotten any of you in this room. He has never once ignored or deserted anyone in this room. And even though we all feel forgotten and deserted sometimes in our pain and in our suffering, should that mean that we quit pursuing God or pursue Him all the more? Should that mean we should walk away from the door of heaven or just start hammering like a freak saying, let me in, answer my question? I learned something so profound and awesome this week that I've never noticed before. Brooke has been part of this Bible study along with Bailey and some other ladies, and they've been looking at the Old Testament, and every time she comes home from studying Scripture with her friends, she's got something new or many things new that just rock my world, that rocked her world. This book is so good. And one of those things this week was this. God chose in Genesis to start to begin a nation for himself that would be composed of God's people. And he said to his boy Abraham, I will make your descendants like the stars in the sky, and I will bless the entire world through your family line. Abraham has a son named Isaac. So there's the beginning of the multiplication, the blessing God mentioned. Isaac has a son named Jacob, so the family is growing. But God stops and says, hang on, I know his name is Jacob, but I am going to call him Israel. And from then on, anytime in the Bible you see the word Israel, that's God referring to this nation, this people, his people. We are all, in, as, as Christian believers, descendants of Israel. We are his Israel. Does anyone know what the name Israel that God refers to his people as means to wrestle with God. God is looking at me today, Jake today, Bailey today, every one of you today, and this is how he refers to you. You're my kid, and you wrestle with me. It's a term of endearment. God loves when we wrestle with him, when we struggle with him, when we bring him our junk and say, I need to have it out with you right now. I'm not happy with this at all. And God is like, bring it on. Let's, let's get into it. We're so afraid of offending God or that we have offended God. And he's like, no, man, I call you my daughter who wrestles with me, my son who wrestles with me. He loves when we bring our junk in all of its funk, not trying to rhyme, it's just happening, and wrestle with him. Do not be afraid to wrestle with God and to bring him your dirtiest thing because he's like, I have been waiting to talk to you about this and I, 
I love you. I know you wrestle with this. It's okay. Odds are it's something I gave you to bless you, and you've just gotten a little confused along the way. God loves that we wrestle with Him. God gave us free will. He could have made us robots, but He gave us free will, and He loves when we use our free will to talk to Him, to engage with Him, to wrestle with Him. But the key is you got to wrestle. You can't run away. You need to talk to Him. Some of you in this room are like, man, I totally have something I need to talk to God about. Talk to Him. Wrestle with your Father. He created you. He loves you, and He is longing to talk to you today. When trouble comes, don't run from God. Run to God. Here's some ways that God not just might speak to you. Here's some ways that God might already be speaking to you right now. I'm just going to breeze through these. There's so many in Scripture. Here's just your few. God uses Scripture to speak to us. This book, all day, every day, crying out, truth, wisdom, personal things that he wants to say to you. 2 Timothy 3.16 says of Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God and it is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. What does that mean? If there's anything in your life that you're like, is this wrong or right? This book has the answer for you. It's literally waiting for you to pick it up. God will speak to you today through this book. It is useful. So let's use it. Romans 1.20, God speaks to us through nature. All people know the truth about God because He has made it obvious to them. Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky, and through everything that God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. This scripture just said, I don't care who you are, where you're from, or where you live. If you have experienced nature through sight, touch, sound, smell, you know there's a creator. You know there's a God. What about those people in New Guinea that have never heard it? They know there's a God. They know it. Just like you, you can't see a sunrise and not be like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Who put that there? The more science discovers about the way our world works, the more scientists are like, there's got to be somebody up there doing something. It's too perfect. It's too good. It's too holy. Job 33, 14, God speaks to us through our dreams. I had this dream last week, and when I woke up, angry as I was, I'm like, there was something to that. Many of you, if not all of you in this room have had dreams, and you're like, there was something going on in that dream. Why are you bringing a charge against God, Job? Why say he does not respond to your complaints? For God speaks again and again and again, though people don't recognize it. He even speaks in dreams, in visions of the night. When deep sleep falls on people, as they lie in their beds, he whispers in their ears, and he terrifies them with warnings. He makes them turn from doing wrong, and he keeps them from pride. You have any scary dreams lately? Man, ask the Lord, are you trying to tell me something right now? Because he just said, oh, that's totally how I roll. And I'm not doing it to scare you. I'm doing it to warn you because I love you, and I don't want you to get hurt. God speaks through his Holy Spirit. This is incredible. This is happening for us right this minute. The Holy Spirit in Romans 8.26 says, 
God's Spirit helps us in our weakness. Any weak people in here? Totally weak. I don't care how many muscles you have, even gay blue. Weak. God's Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. I don't know what to pray. Yeah, He knows. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings too deep for words. God's Spirit is praying for you right now. God is praying, dear God, may they hear what Justin is saying and change the way they think. Revelation 1, 10 through 16, God even speaks sometimes through angels or just his son himself, Jesus himself, shows up and says, I got something to say. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the Spirit and suddenly, I've been on this island forever My life sucks, and suddenly, I've been worshiping God even though my circumstances are horrible, and yet, suddenly, I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet blast, and it said, write in a book everything you're about to see. Send the book to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatra, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. And he was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His head and his hair White as wool, white as snow, eyes like fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. And he held seven stars in his right hand. And a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. Can you imagine how John felt then? Pastor Jeff has been writing these daily emails about Revelation as it started the week we began Revelation. Talk about a divine appointment. I get to glean all kinds of good, yummy stuff from Jeff all semester. And he said this about this passage. I don't think there's anyone alive who can fully imagine the dazzling splendor of Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And on the day he appears, we will be completely overwhelmed and undone. John, in this moment, when he's praying in the Spirit, worshiping God, and God literally shows up, was overwhelmed and undone, just like that. When I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me, and he said, don't be afraid. I am the first I am the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and the grave. Now write down what you have seen, both the things that are happening right now and the things that will happen in the future. Now this is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are themselves the seven churches. And there's so much in there, and we're going to get to that next week. The apostle John suffered, but he kept his eyes on Jesus through it all. He didn't complain to the world or his friends because his friends were like rocks. 
He wrestled with God instead. He took it to the cross and said, God, I love you, but I don't like this. Please, what do you have to say about it? And because of his patient endurance, he had the most life-changing, world-changing, scripture-changing revelation from God. Just like that. Where are you feeling like, I need to endure better? I need to patiently endure there. Do you know that your revelation, your moment of like, oh my God, there he is, is closer than you think? Dwight, you guys cruise on up here. We're going to wrap up our sermon. We're going to respond in just a moment, and you might notice there is no communion present in the room today because our communion is going to be had in worship. We're going to commune with Jesus by singing to Him in just a moment. And I want to challenge you. I want you guys to sing, not for the sake of the band or so that I can be like, yeah, they sang. I want you to sing for Jesus who saved you, who's speaking to you, who has better things to say to you than have been said so far. I want you to sing to your Savior as we close in just a second. Those three steps necessary to survive or thrive in suffering, be willing to suffer for Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus, and develop patient endurance in Jesus. The the key to all of them is that none of them will happen without you having faith. Faith like God's people. Faith like the nation of Israel. Faith like the people in Hebrews 11. I read you guys Hebrews 11 at least a couple times a semester. This passage where it says they did this and this and this and they were just studs in the name of Jesus. And I, I don't know that I've ever read to you the next paragraph. I want to read to you all of what Hebrews says when it comes to our faith. Because sometimes it rocks and it makes us studs and heroes in the kingdom. But sometimes it's hard and it's suffering but it's all good. He uses all of it. You guys, by faith, our ancestors overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice. They received what God promised them. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the flames of fire. They escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned into strength. They became strong in battle. They put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. And that's where I stop. Because that's awesome. I want that. We're all capable of that. But there's more. Others were tortured. Refusing to turn from God in order to be set free, they placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were ridiculed, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Others were sawed in half. Others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing nothing but animal skins, poor, oppressed, mistreated, because they were too good for this world. And they wandered over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. Every one of us in this room, no matter what your station in life is, knows what it means to suffer. And I will tell you why we suffer so much on this earth. I will tell you why bad things happen, because we are too good for this world. This was never supposed to be our home. 
Our home is after this. Our home is in heaven with Jesus, and we will have to suffer along the way. We will have to experience some bad stuff before we get there, but the good stuff is like this close. God has something better for you. Endure. You can do this. And if you have a problem along the way, wrestle with your father. He loves it. He loves to mix it up with you. We're going to pray, and then we're going to worship. And again, I just exhort you, sing. You were made to sing. Stand up and bow your heads. Lord, we thank you for the gift of revelation. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of truth because we are surrounded by lies. We thank you that you tell us dark days are coming. God, dark days are here. We get sick. We die. Our bodies are weak. Our hearts break left and right. The world is literally dying. It's ending before our eyes. We need endurance. We need you to help us develop endurance so that we can keep seeking you, praising you, wrestling with you because we want to receive that incredible blessing. We want to exist with you in heaven, which you say is better than we can ever imagine. Lord, you tell us in John it was the Lord's day And despite his suffering, he worshiped in the Spirit. So may we, despite our suffering, worship in the Spirit. May we declare these lyrics over our hurt, over our pain. Would you use our song to change the way that we think about how awesome you are, how good you are, and how mighty we are in Jesus' name. Let's worship.